would turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 46 as we continue this Lord's Day to walk through the book of Genesis together. I've been giving Pastor Nick a hard time because in the last two weeks he's gone to two different family reunions and we've been joking about family reunions. Perhaps uh, some of you, this is the time of year when a lot of people uh, go to those types of things and uh, if you go to many family reunions, you know usually it's a time where you see some folks you haven't seen in a while, maybe some you haven't seen in quite some time and you get together, you see how people have changed, you see what's going on in people's lives. I want you to imagine the family reunion that we are going to read about in the Scripture today. Uh, this is one in which Jacob has not seen his son Joseph in over 22 years. And for much of that time, for the majority of that time, he's believed his son Joseph to be dead. And now not only has he found out that his son is indeed alive, He's found out that God has used his son there in Egypt to preserve the nation of Egypt and to preserve his own family, Jacob's family. And now he's been invited to come to Egypt to go there to be with his son, Joseph. But in order to do that, it requires great faith because it means that Jacob is going to have to leave the land of promise and go to a land that has been for those who were unfaithful, the land of Egypt, the land of paganism. And so as we read today's text, as we read about Jacob making that transition from the promised land to the land of Egypt. I want you to consider the, 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 what we learned here about faith, about walking in faith. I want you to consider how the scripture teaches us we are to deal with fears we have about stepping out in faith. And most of all, I want you to consider the gospel of Jesus as I believe this text and every text in the Bible will point us towards. Uh, if you are able to, if you will stand together as I read this text for us out of reverence for the holy word of God. And we pick up in God's Word in Genesis 46, beginning in verse 1. And this is what the Lord's Word says to us. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all the offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel came with him into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Pilu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Koath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tul, Puvah, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters, number 33. The sons of God, Ziphion, Haggai, 
Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Ariel, the sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Berea, and Sarah, their sister, the sons of Berea, Heber, and Malshiel, the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and then she bore to Jacob sixteen persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, from, from Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Besher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shimlil. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and then she bore to Jacob seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before Goshen, and they came up to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of the livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. If you would pray with me. Father God, we pray in Jesus' name that you might teach us from this word. We realize this morning, this this section of the scripture contains names that are very unfamiliar to us and and so often we just kind of skip over texts like this one and yet I believe you have a word for us from this so help us amidst the unfamiliar to see the gospel help us in names we don't understand to understand the gospel Lord teach us through your word today we pray in Jesus name amen you may be seated Whenever we go on family trips together, oftentimes my wife Sandy, especially when the kids are real little, as we get to the state line, we'll say something to the effect of, okay guys, let's, let's take in our last breath of Kentucky air or Tennessee air or North Carolina air and, and hold that breath till we get to the other side. And maybe you do something like that with your kids or, or something else that kind of marks we're, we're moving from one place to another. We're, we're crossing a boundary here just to point those things out. And in the text today, we have a boundary that's going to be crossed by Jacob and his family. And it is much more significant than a state line. And he's going to do much more than tell them to hold their breath. What we have here is Jacob being called 
to leave the land of promise, leave the promised land, which had been his singular focus for so much of his life, and to go to Egypt. Egypt was a place that, for Jacob's ancestors, not really good things that happened there. Egypt was a place full of paganism. Egypt was a place full of godlessness. And so, as Jacob is called to go there, he is probably considering his grandfather Abraham, who, when there was famine in the land, fled to Egypt. And if you remember what happened there, he sinned greatly. He lied about his wife out of fear. He said she was his sister. And the entire lineage that leads us to Christ seems to be in jeopardy for that moment because he was not faithful. He was fearful in Egypt. Then his son Isaac, another famine comes. He's tempted to go also to Egypt. And God stops Isaac and says, No, do not go there. I will provide for you. And he too has to make a decision whether he'll respond in faith or in fear. And now, Jacob, there's another famine in the land. There's one place where there's resources and food. It's in Egypt. Except this time, God is calling him to go to Egypt. And the question is, will he go? And in going, how will he deal with his fears of what might lie ahead? It's a question I think that we can all relate to when we consider the bigger picture of what does it mean to step out in faith when we encounter fear. I would assume that everyone in this room today is scared of something. And I'm not talking about being scared of spiders and phobias. I'm talking about fear in your life. Fear about change. Fear about situations. Fear to deal with certain things. Fears that relate to your faith. And fears that bring up the question, am I going to respond to this fear by having faith in God? Or am I going to respond to this fear, as so many do, by figuring out how I will fix it on my own? And I think that's something we can relate to as we look to this text. And so I think we can learn from Jacob and ultimately from the gospel, which teaches us the first point I've put there in your notes. Faith leads us to trust in the Lord in spite of our fears. So often in the scripture and in life, we see that, that, that fear fundamentally is an enemy of faith. And, and fear, if we're not careful, can debilitize us. Fear can encompass us. Fear can overwhelm us. And fear, I believe, is certainly in Jacob's life at this point. Because as I've already mentioned, he, he is leaving the promised land to go to Egypt. Now again, to, to just try to let that sink in for a moment. His entire life has been about this promise God has given him of this land and the promise connected to the land and the nations that will come from him from this land. And as an old man, later in life, he's sitting back and he sees his kids and he sees his children's children and he's looking around the land of Canaan and, and this is it. And then his boys come back from Egypt with a message. A message he was never expecting to hear. His son Joseph's alive. And not only that, his son Joseph has been elevated to a point of helping to rule the nation of Egypt. And that's the only place that Jacob and his family are going to survive. And he's being told, you've got to leave behind the land of promise and your comfort there and everything you've been called to there. And you've got to go to Egypt. And Egypt was far from the land of promise. There is much I could say to you this morning about the, the culture in Egypt, the paganism in Egypt, the rituals in Egypt, the false gods in Egypt. But, but I think that Romans 1 
common, the commentary in Romans 1, I think, relates to Egypt as it does to so many places today. Listen to what Paul says. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is true of our, our culture today. And we have people who will worship the creation and not the creator. That was true of Egypt in Jacob's day. And so he is at this point, at this boundary, where he's being called to leave behind the promised land where he worshiped the one true God and to go to Egypt where there are pagans and they worship many false gods. He was certainly overwhelmed with fear. So the question is, how does he deal with it? Well, he deals with it in verse 1 by worshiping the one true God. He stops in the midst of his fear and just worships God. He makes a sacrifice to God. The scripture tells us there at Beersheba, that's a, a familiar place to us. That's where Abraham ha- had worshipped God. And now Jacob, in a like way, is worshipping God. And I think that's so significant for us. Because you and I need to ask ourselves the question, how, how do we respond in the midst of our fears? When you are fearful, whether it's something small or something great, when, when you are overwhelmed by fear, what do you do? If you're like many, what you do is, is you fret and you worry and you get anxious and you start trying to figure out how you're going to fix it to get things to the point where you're not fearful anymore. But what we're called to do, I believe, in those moments, just as in every moment, is what we see Jacob do here. In those moments of great fear, those are opportunities for great faith. And in those moments, we have the opportunity to do what Jacob does here. And the text tells us what he does is he makes sacrifices And he worships God. And he seeks God. And if you'll notice what happens, God responds to him. And notice what God does there in verse 2. The first thing God says to him is, Jacob, Jacob. God knows Jacob's name. And God reminds Jacob in that moment, as he is worried, as he is overwhelmed, as he is fearful, Jacob, I know you. I know my people, and Jacob, you are my people. God knows the names of His people. Yet there are seven point some odd billion people in the world today. And there are millions who have lived before today and died. And God knows the names of every one of those people. And He knows those who are His. The Scripture reminds us of this point when we see here Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. And not only does he remind him he knows his name, he reminds him he knows his problem. He knows his concern. Notice what God says to him. Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. See, Jacob doesn't even need to say to God he's overwhelmed or he's scared. God already knows. And so what does God say to him? Jacob, don't respond in fear. Don't be scared. I know you. I know my people. I know your problems. And so how does God respond to his people and the problems of his people? He responds by reiterating to him his promise. And he reminds Jacob of what he's going to do. Jacob, I will make you into a great nation. Why does Jacob need that reminder? Because Jacob's at a point in his life where he has been promised a land and a people. If you remember that promise God made, he, he told him, 
that his people were going to be great. That kings were going to come from him. Multitudes, nations. And he was going to be in this land. And yet, what is happening in Jacob's life? He's being called to leave that land. And notice how many people leave with him. Notice how great his number is. Seventy. Now, I realize in our context today that that might seem like a big family, but that's not exactly nations at this point. In fact, you'll find more people on one side of the football field in a college football game dressed out in uniforms than you find in Jacob's family at this point. This is not necessarily this great, huge, enormous family that Jacob had been promised. And so what is God doing? He's reminding Jacob, Jacob, I know you. I know your concerns. I know what you're worried about. And Jacob, I'm still who I said I am, and I'm still going to do what I said I'm going to do. And Jacob needed that reminder just as we need that reminder often. Because there are times when we look around and we think, Lord, this doesn't seem to be what I thought it was going to be. Things haven't quite worked out like I thought they were going to. And I think Jacob is in part in that moment. And God says to Jacob, remember my promise. And then I think foundationally he says to him, that that promise is supported by my presence. He reminds Jacob, Jacob, I will be with you. He reminds Jacob that while he's leaving the land of promise, he's not leaving the God of promise. And that God says he will be with him and he will go with him. In fact, he says to Jacob, Jacob, I'm going I'm to bring you back. We know from the text, and I think Jacob probably knows in God telling him that as he says, Joseph's going to close his eyes. He's not going to come back alive. But, but he, he keeps his promises. He promises his presence. And notice then how Jacob responds. He obeys God, and he crosses that boundary. He worshiped God. He took in that breath, and he walks over there. He goes over there. He crosses over there to Egypt. And in doing that, friends, I think there's a lesson for us. A lesson about how we are to deal with fear in our life. As I've already mentioned, you all, we all, we, we have fears. Fears that can range in what they are. And oftentimes in those fears, we, we want people to tell us what to do on one hand, but we don't really want to listen to God's Word on the other hand. If it tells us to do something, we really don't want to do. Because in our fear, we, we kind of default to our flesh and what our flesh tells us, what, what our what we really want to do. I had a, a guy stop by not too long ago, just randomly at the church. I'd never seen him before, never seen him since. I'm looking around to make sure he's not here because things are going to get real awkward real quick if he is, but I think he is. He came to the office and, and wanted to speak to a pastor, and so I sat down and talked with him, and he immediately began to share with me all kinds of things going on in his life, specifically this this one thing that was just overwhelming him with fear and anxiety and worry. And I didn't know this guy from anything, but I know what the Scripture says. And there was some real clear stuff as he was sharing that I went, no, that's not what the Scripture says. And so I just told him, I said, listen, sir, I, I don't know you. I'll probably never see you again. i got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to speak to you directly from the Word of God because I assume that's why you came here. I'm a pastor of the Word. I'm going to share with you Word. This is what the Word says. You need to do this by faith because this is what the Word says. He looked at me and said, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, why'd you stop? <laughs> you know, go to the psychic. Go somewhere else if you want to hear what you want to hear. But, but this is what God's Word says to you. 
It's not what I say, it's what God's Word says. And if you're fearful here, there's a reason. And you've got sin, and this is what the Scripture calls you to do. By faith, trusting in it, will you do this or not? And he walked out of the office saying, no, I won't. Now that was some random guy, but friend, I've had that conversation a lot of times. And I've been on both sides of it. And we all have. We all come to those points where, we're, where we are scared and we are fearful and we've got to decide are we going to respond to that fear or are we going to walk in faith. It can come in many ways. You can be overwhelmed by fear right now because perhaps in your life God is calling you to some sort of change. And most of us don't like change. And we get real fearful about change. We get fearful about the unknown and we're not sure about this. And we're not sure about this and what might this look like. And so we're comfortable and see, that's what Jacob could have done. Jacob could have said, I'm comfortable in the land of promise. I've got things established here. I'm not going where I'm scared. And yet God called him and called us by faith to follow him to step out in faith. It might not be change. It might be you're scared of conflict. You're scared of anything that might rock the boat. You're scared knowing you need to talk to this person about this thing of what might happen. Many of us don't share the gospel for this reason. If we're brutally honest, we don't share the gospel with people because we are so scared of what might happen. We're so scared of how they might respond. We're so scared of how it might change the relationship. So we're more comfortable talking about weather and sports and politics and weight loss programs and whatever else than about talking about their eternal life and the gospel of Jesus because because we're scared of what's going to happen. Some of us this morning, we're scared just of confession. We're just fearful if the person closest to us in our life really knew what was going on. If we really disclosed to them the sin in our life, if we just cleared the slate and confessed sin, we're so scared of how they're going to respond and of possible rejection that, that, that we just cower in that fear. The, the list goes on, friend. That There are literally... Endless things you can be scared of this morning. But God calls us all to the same thing. He calls us all to walk by faith. And we see here a lesson from one who walks by faith. And he does so by stepping out and by worshiping God. And as he God, worships God, God reminds him of what I believe he reminds us of in his word. God knew Jacob's name. Friend, God knows our name too. Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's a beautiful illustration of Jesus as the shepherd, and here's all his sheep. And he goes, you know what? I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And when I say something, my sheep respond to me, and I know who they are. Those sheep over there, they belong to somebody else. They don't listen to my voice. I don't call them by name. These are mine. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you are His. And He knows you. He he knows your name. But before your parents were in the hospital trying to say, well, do we name them after your mom or my mom or what about this or I'm not sure about this name, before you started flipping through the baby name book, before you even knew or were known of, God knew you and He knew your name and He knows everything about you. And so he doesn't just know your name, he, he knows your fears and he knows your problems. In fact, there's a point in Matthew when the disciples want to know how to pray and Jesus tells them how to pray and he starts off by saying this, your father knows what you need to ask before you ask him. 
You think about that for a second. That doesn't seem like a great motivator to pray, does it? You know, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Well, God already knows what you're going to ask. Okay. Jesus isn't rebuking the disciples and telling them not to pray. He's reminding them of the power and the sovereignty and the almighty God they're praying to. And he's saying, this God you're going to, you're, you're not teaching him something. You're not turning on the light for him. He knows everything about you. He knows every fear and every concern. And he stands ready to respond. And as he responds to Jacob, he responds to us. He reminds us of His promises. God's Word's full of them. And His promises remind us what He said He's going to do, and He's going to be faithful to what He said He's going to do. And I'll tell you one of them that just God has used to minister to me many times over and over and over again it is a promise that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's a kind of rest we need that 6, 8, 10, 12 hours of sleep can't give us. There's a rest that you can't get from a pill, and you can't get from a vacation, and you can't get from a lifetime of good sleeping habits. It's a rest for your soul. And Jesus says the concerns, the problems, the fears you have right now in here. And he says to his sheep, to his people, come on. Come, come to me. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, and then he backs that promise up with a foundation that he backs it up with with Jacob. He reminds us as he does him of his presence. God says to Jacob, listen, I will be with you. That, that is the great promise of the gospel, Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus reminds us of those very words at the end of Matthew's gospel as he's about to ascend into heaven. He says to them, I am with you always. Think of the context. He's just told them, listen, you're going to go to the nations and you're going to make disciples. Well, what might be the fear that would go along with that? Well, principally would be the fear that Jesus had just been crucified for this gospel message. And now in that timing, in that culture, in that context, he's telling the disciples, I want you to follow me and remember, I will be with you always. And no matter what your fear this morning, no matter what your fret this morning, no matter what your anxiety this morning, do you realize that promise? That promise from the Lord, you can come to Him. That promise that, that He is always with us. He never abandons us. No matter what our circumstance may suggest. No matter what people around us may say. No matter who else turns and leaves. Jesus says, I will never leave you. And knowing those things, friends... We can walk in faith, but we need to understand as we do. The second point I'll put in your notes there, that God will grow that faith. But so often, He will grow it through adversity and persecution. We like it when He grows our faith through Sunday school lessons. <laughs> through sermons and air-conditioned buildings. 
a little harder when God chooses to grow that faith through adversity and through persecution and suffering. And yet, that's what we see in the Scripture. Here in Genesis 46, you have a list of names, I'm sure many of which I've mispronounced, many of which we normally just skip over, many of which we don't actually read about anywhere else in the Scripture but here. So what's the point? (laughs) These pages are precious. The space in God's Word is precious. And God has chosen through Moses to reveal to us this list of names. Why? I think there, there could be many, many reasons, but I want to point out a couple to you this morning. First, I think it's significant that the very short commentary he offers us, particularly in verse 10 of Shaul. This is Simeon's son, the son of a Canaanite woman. Now you think about the context here. Jacob's in the land of promise in Canaan, but he's not the only one there. There are all these Canaanites, all these people who worship false gods, pagan gods. God has warned his people and God will continue to warn his people. Do not intermarry with them, for their gods will become your gods. And you will forsake me and you'll begin to worship and follow false gods. God gives this warning consistently throughout his word. And yet, what happens to God's people in Canaan? We have here in this lineage, in these 70 people, multiple examples of those who intermarry with these Canaanites and the offspring from them. And you think of Judah and that whole debacle with him. And he marries a Canaanite woman and all that comes from that. I think what God perhaps may be helping us to see here is there's a reason that he's taking his people out of the land of promise and he's taking them down to Egypt. You see, in going to Egypt, they're going to be considered outcasts. Even before they become slaves, they're shepherds. And what does the Scripture tell us on multiple occasions now? The Egyptians saw shepherds as an abomination. We don't know all the reasons. We don't know culturally what the issue was. But the Egyptians saw shepherds as those they would separate themselves from. And so what does Jacob tell, or excuse me, what does Joseph tell his father and his brothers? You make sure when Pharaoh asks you who you are, that you tell him your occupation, that we're shepherds. Why does he do that? Because Joseph wants his family in Goshen. Why? Because that will separate them from the Egyptians. Why is that important? Because God's taking His people from a place where they are tempted over and over and over again to fail and to intermarry with the people of that land and He's going to take them, I would suggest, into a place that is sort of like another ark. He's going to protect His people by insulating them, by rescuing them from destruction, from taking them out of danger, and He's going to put them in this place. And you notice what happens in that place? They multiply greatly. In fact, in the 215 years from the time that God gives the promise to Abraham that through his descendants nations will come until the time Jacob and his family cross out of the promised land into Egypt, Jacob has about 70 descendants. In the next 430 years, that 70 will grow to over 2 million. Now they will suffer and they will face adversity And it will be hard, but they suffered for a purpose and a reason. And I would suggest that one of those is that God is growing the faith 
of Israel in this time. He has taken them into an ark in Egypt. He's protecting them. He's insulating them. And as he does, they're not intermarrying with the Canaanites anymore. Now his people are flourishing and they are growing and they're doing that in the midst of great adversity and persecution that you and I don't know today. But there are people in the world who do. I am sad when I make this statement, but it's the truth. We, we live in a nation now where, where the, the, the church of Jesus is on the decline. In the borders we live in, in our country, churches are closing their doors day by day, week by week. Memberships are growing smaller, less people are being reached, less people are being discipled. Why? Got air-conditioned buildings. Got bouncy houses for the kids. Got buildings and programs and every different way to publicize and the internet and marketing campaigns and and company after company that specializes in growing churches and and all these resources and all these tools. And the church is dying here. But it's not dying everywhere. Because there are places where they don't have air-conditioned buildings, where they can't safely preach the gospel, there are places today, as we sit here, where a man will get up and will testify to the gospel of Jesus, and he will be dragged out of the building and brutally beaten and killed on the street in front of his children. That's the reality of the world today. I spent time not too long ago with a young man Escaping a part of the world where there was that type of persecution. He he took a stand for the gospel and he lost everything. He he had a business. He had a family. He had wealth and resources. And he left the country literally with the clothes on his back. He had no idea whether his family was still alive. He, He bore scars on his hands of where his hands were broken. Scars where he was just beaten for the sake of the gospel. And I wondered as I talked to that man, what would happen in our nation? What would happen in our county if that's what the gospel cost you and me? Everything that's got your name on it. If in a moment you were called to leave it all behind. You drop the keys. You don't lock up. You don't get your clothes and pack them up. You don't load them in the car. You flee and you never come back for the gospel. And I think if that day comes, we won't have to worry about cleaning our membership rolls anymore. Because <laughs> you won't want to be on them. Or at least some of you won't. I think the day may come where we too see what many in the world see today. Where unless you're truly a disciple who's responded to the call of Jesus to deny yourself and take up your cross and be willing to die, We won't have to worry about whether or not this person was really authentic in their testimony at eight years old that we haven't seen for 48 years now in the church. See, that's how God so often grows the faith of His people is through that that persecution. And that's why we look around the world and our persecuted brothers and sisters, they can't put the fire out. And yet here, where we're comfortable, we're not persecuted, not at least on that level, we're, we're struggling. I was reminded of a missionary that I heard speak a number of years ago who talked about being in a part of the world where there was great persecution and adversity. 
he was there and he was in an underground church and they brought Bibles and immediately as they brought the Bibles, people began to just rip pages out of the Bible because they just wanted to have a page of God's Word. And it was too dangerous for them to have the whole Bible and be caught with it. And so they'd take that page, they'd memorize it, they'd pass it on to someone else. And he'd watched as those believers in this country began to pray and pray intently and so focused and on their knees pouring out their hearts and at one point the translator stopped translating for them what they were praying and he said I, I want to know what they're praying he goes oh no it's just nothing no no they're, they're, they're saying something and they're so fervent and they're in tears I want to know what they're praying he says well I, I think you'll be offended if you know what they're praying <laughs> he goes I want to know what they're praying he says they're praying that persecution will come to America like it's come here so that the church might grow Nobody signs up for that. But that puts a whole different perspective on things, doesn't it? Are, are you willing, am I willing to die for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing, am I willing to endure persecution and adversity for the sake of the gospel? And friend, if we are and as we are, God does something in that and, and He moves in that and He even rewards that, but not the way we think He's going to so often. And that's the last thing I've put there in your notes. I believe God certainly rewards our faith. I realize talking about persecution and death and dying doesn't seem like a great reward there. But, but God does reward the faith of His people. But not in the way that we so often expect. The, the Scripture does not teach that God rewards our faith by us writing something on a piece of paper and claiming it until we get it. The Scripture does not teach that God rewards our faith by giving us a clean bill of health or wealth or prosperity. The Scripture points us towards an even greater reward. But so often one we're not looking for. And then along the way, God shows us His grace and mercy in unexpected ways. And I believe we see Him do that here in this text as this family is reunited. I mean, consider Jacob for a moment. What reward was he expecting? <laughs> A nation, a land. And nations and a land. He, he was expecting the promised land and the promised people. And what did he get? Jacob, I want you to pack your bags. And I want you to take your little group here. And I want you to leave the promised land. And I want you to go down here. But that's not what he expected. But what did he do? How did God reward him? He gave him the very thing that he never expected to get. He gave him his son back. He brought his dead son back to life. For decades, Jacob has believed his son is dead. Jacob has not likely been on his knees crying out to be reunited with Joseph. Jacob has died to the reality, to the wish, to the hope that his boy is still alive. And to him, Joseph has been dead. And what does God give him? The very thing he never expected. And a reward he wasn't looking for. And we see a picture of it here when, when Joseph and Jacob are reunited. He, he falls on his neck and they just weep. And they just weep and they just weep. God blesses the faith of Jacob. But he does it in a way different than he was looking for. And friend, God blesses our faith that way too. In fact, we read earlier Hebrews. And I mentioned in Hebrews 11, you've got such a list of faithful men and women. And yet, the writer of Hebrews, he, he summarizes them all by saying this. 
All these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about what happens when you don't get what you were promised. You sue somebody. (laughs) Well, I deserve this. Well, I was promised this. Well, I better get what I deserve. And God says, here's the most faithful who've ever lived. And they did not get what they were promised. At least not in the way they were looking for it. It goes on to say is that God had something better. And apart from that, they and we, we wouldn't be made perfect. And that that better then is Jesus Christ. That better then is when God takes His own Son who did indeed die and brings Him back to life. That we might have life through Him. You see, that the reward we expect, the reward we want falls short of the reward we receive in the Gospel. And here's the brutal reality. Most of us would rather have our marriage fixed than our soul saved. And we get more concerned about getting a clean bill of health than we do about the reality of men and women's souls. Because we settle for a lesser reward. We want it now. We want something to fix stuff. We're scared about things. We want God just to do something. And and we lose the focus of the Scripture that says, listen, there's something greater. Jacob, there's something better than the land of promise. And there's a better land that's to come. And it points us to the Gospel. And friend, whatever it is you fear this morning, may God use that fear in your life to point you to the Gospel. And when you see that fear in light of the Gospel, may He so overwhelm you with the reward that comes through that that you no longer fear. Because for those in Christ, there is nothing to fear. What can man take from you who know Christ? Can they take your life? Go ahead. I'm going to be with Jesus for eternity. That reward cannot be taken. Jesus says, you are in my hand. You are in the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. What can separate us from the love of God? The Scripture asks. And thing after thing after thing after thing is mentioned. The point is, nothing can. Not cancer. Not sickness. Not genetic syndromes. Not bankruptcies. Not failed relationships, not disappointments, nothing can separate you and I from the love of God that is offered us in Christ Jesus. And friends, that's the reward. And everything else falls short. And Jesus wants His church to remember that reward. And so not only does He speak of it in His ministry, He he leaves us with a reminder of it in His meal, in His supper. We, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper so that you don't have to go to lunch today. <laughs> if you get full from this thimble and this cracker, th- th- this isn't going to fill you in that way. We, 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 don't, we don't celebrate this meal in some way to say, well, God, I've worked really hard, and God, I've done this much, and so thank you for making up the difference with Jesus. We celebrate this meal because Jesus said, You and I need reminders. And you and I need to be reminded that our focus is not to be on the things of this world, but the things in the world to come. 
And that's why Jesus, when he gets his disciples together, I mean, consider the timing. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die for their sin. Things are about to be so radically different than everything they expected. But he's leaving them with a reminder that's not just for them, but it's for the history of the church to say, I know your name. I know your concerns before you tell me about them. And I've made promises to you that I will keep. And he says to them, as he says to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And that is what we are to be reminded of this morning as we come together to this table.